Hi folks, my name is Drew Ray and this is episode 57 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. The scary thing we're dealing with in this episode is the controversy after the Erebus disaster. I'm sorry this episode is dropping late. Don't worry, DisasterCast is not disappearing again, I just had a bunch of other stuff going on. Stick around to the end of the episode if you want to hear about some of our lab's current work, including a job we're advertising. Since some of you have been waiting a while though, let's get straight into a disaster and its aftermath. The cheapest and most comfortable way to see Antarctica is through the window of a plane. So, there are companies that offer sightseeing flights in passenger jets. The flights have all the comforts and inconveniences of a long-haul plane trip, but they start and end at the same airport and have spectacular scenery for a few hours of the 12 or 13 hour round trip. The boring bits are broken up by onboard experts and guest speakers. In 1979, Air New Zealand regularly ran one of these tours past Ross Island. Ross Island is pretty much the closest point you can get to the South Pole by ship. So there are historical sites from Scott and Shackleton's expeditions, as well as the scientific bases McMurdo Station and Scott Station. You can see icebergs, sheets of sea ice, and the icy edge of the Antarctic mainland. There's also an active volcano called Mount Erebus. On 28 November 1979, Air New Zealand Flight TE-901 was somewhat to the north of Ross Island. The flight descended from 16,000 to 1,500 feet, and then, in broad daylight and clear weather, flew straight into the side of Mount Erebus. Everyone on board was killed. The Chief Inspector of Air Accidents for New Zealand at the time was Mr Ron Chippendale. He produced a report that found, and I'm quoting directly here, the probable cause of this accident was the decision to continue the flight at low level toward an area of poor surface and horizon definition when the crew was not certain of their position. Let me unpack that quote a little for you. Air New Zealand had an official, official minimum sector altitude of 16,000 feet for approach to McMurdo Station. Flight TO901 always went below this altitude because A, the whole point of the flight was sightseeing and you can't sightsee ice at 16,000 feet, and B, the flight wasn't supposed to be headed towards McMurdo Station, it was headed over McMurdo Sound. McMurdo Station is on an island with a volcano. McMurdo Sound is a flat ice sheet. You want to be at different heights for the two things. So the air crew's decision to continue the flight at low level was the exact same decision that was always made on this same flight. It was made for good reasons, and it was a safe thing to do. The area of poor surface and horizon definition that the report is talking about is referring to a phenomenon called whiteout. It's particular to Arctic and Antarctic conditions, and it has nothing to do with blizzards. Whiteout happens in totally clear conditions. What happens is there's an optical illusion when you have large stretches of white ground and white sky. The illusion causes you to be unable to see changes in ground altitude. You can be walking along and think that the ground is flat, when in fact there are bumps or steps. You can be flying along and think that the mountain in front of you is in fact flat ground below you. 
Some pilots even talk of runways that seem to float in mid-air due to the problem with height perception. The whole point of whiteout is that you can't tell when you're experiencing whiteout. It's not like flying through snow or fog when you know that you're in bad weather conditions. Whiteout looks like good visibility. So when the report says poor surface and horizon definition, it's talking about whiteout, and it's basically saying that the flight was in Antarctica. Also, oddly enough, true of every other flight in Antarctica that didn't crash. So we get to the final bit of the conclusion. The crew was not certain of their position. This is what I really hate about findings of pilot error. Of course the crew was not certain of their position. The pilots flew into the side of a mountain that they didn't think was there. The investigators couldn't find out why that had happened. They couldn't find any problem with the plane. They couldn't find any problem with the computers. They couldn't find any problem with the weather. So by a process of elimination, it must have been the pilots. This is stupid logic. If the investigators fairly applied the same test to the pilots that they did to all the physical aspects of the accident, then they'd have to say, in the same way, we can find no evidence of pilot error. We can find no problem with the hardware, we can find no problem with the computers, we can find no problem with the weather, we can no prob- find no problem with the pilot. Sorry, we're stumped. But they didn't say that. Because the investigators couldn't find anything else to explain what the plane was doing pointed at the mountain, they assumed that it must have been a mistake by the pilots despite no actual evidence of any such mistake. According to the report, the pilots were to blame because they did the exact same thing that every other pilot on the same flight had done. Flown at somewhat low altitude in Antarctic conditions in order to run a low-altitude Antarctic sightseeing flight. Every other pilot had made the same decisions with good results. Only this time... For no explainable reason, the flight went right towards a mountain. In the absence of an alternative cause, the investigation just jumped onto the pilot error explanation. And there things would have ended, if not for the fact that the pilot's union takes much the same attitude towards things that I do, and one very interesting piece of evidence overlooked by the chief air investigator. There was a reason why this particular flight headed into the mountain, while every other flight headed down McMurdo Sound. And that reason is that unbeknownst to the pilots, someone had reprogrammed the computer to point the plane at the mountain. The normal route for this flight was to fly just north of Ross Island, descend to get a good view, and then fly along McMurdo Sound, with a sea of floating icebergs below, and Ross Island out to the left of the plane. 1979 might seem like a long time ago, but it wasn't the Dark Ages as far as air navigation was concerned. Flight plans were managed by a ground-based navigation and planning computer system and then uploaded to a computer on the aircraft. The Flight 901 flight plan included a waypoint called McMurdo, which was positioned in the middle of McMurdo Sound, well away from any land. Herein lie the seeds of deadly confusion. We have McMurdo Sound, a large flat area of floating ice. We have McMurdo Station, on the other side of the volcano, Mount Erebus. And we have McMurdo Waypoint, currently in the middle of McMurdo Sound. To confuse things a little further, we also have a non-directional radio beacon, NDB, close to, 
but not at exactly the same location as McMurdo Station. We don't know for certain why the waypoint was in the middle of the sound. According to strict interpretation of the rules at the time, Air New Zealand flights were not equipped to fly towards a virtual waypoint, such as the one in the sound. With the equipment they had, they were supposed to plan flights directly from beacon to beacon. There was a bit of dispute as to whether this rule had any real safety value, but that's the way it was. So the very, very original flight plan in 1977, two years before the accident, had TE-1 flying over the volcano Mount Erebus to McMurdo Station. In 1978, the year before the accident, the route was changed to head down the sound. It's possible that this was a deliberate but undocumented decision, but there's also evidence to suggest it may simply have been a mistake in entering the coordinates into the computer. In any case, travelling down the sound was generally a safer route, because it didn't go over an active volcano, and it was better for sightseeing. And the briefing documents mostly reflected this change of flight plan, but there were some inconsistencies. Throughout 1978 and 1979, the T901 flights had an official path, known as the NavTrack, down McMurdo Sound, whereas in actual fact they were free to vary off the track, depending on viewing conditions to provide good sightseeing. On 9th November 1979, there was a briefing. Exactly what happened at this briefing was disputed. At the briefing, there were Captain Collins and First Officer Kaysen, the flight crew of the doomed flight. There were also three other pilots due to fly a different Antarctic flight. The flight plan used at that briefing had the waypoint in the middle of the sound, and it had some photos consistent with this route, but there was no actual topographical map showing the track to be followed. Some of the verbal material seems to have indicated that the waypoint was at McMurdo Station, not McMurdo Sound. On 14th of November, five days after the briefing and two weeks before the accident, there was a flight to Antarctica where the captain noticed the discrepancy in the briefing details, the difference between the verbal instructions and the things marked on the map. Early on the morning of 28th November, six hours before the fatal flight, the waypoint in the computer was updated to point at McMurdo Station, not McMurdo Sound. There's some confusion again as to exactly why this happened, or what the people who did it thought they were doing. They were responding to the reported discrepancy from the previous flight, but it's possible they thought that they were just tweaking the waypoint a small distance, maybe two miles, not two whole degrees of longitude. In any case, the waypoint was moved, and Captain Collins wasn't told. Every action he took, before and during the flight, is consistent with him believing that the navigation track pointed straight down the sound, where it was safe. And the preponderance of evidence suggests that this is exactly what he should have believed, based on what he was told. The reason I keep using slightly weasley words like uncertain and possible is that Air New Zealand went out of their way to try to pin the accident on the pilots, so we never heard a frank discussion of the actual reason for the original change of route and the waypoint correction. There's strong evidence that Air New Zealand knew very shortly after the accident that the waypoint had been shifted. So, why did the chief investigator think this was insignificant when he made his report? Maybe he misunderstood what had happened. Descriptions of the investigation suggest he formed a fairly early judgement that the pilots must have lost their way in bad weather, 
and that confirmation bias subsequently influenced his interpretation of the cockpit voice transcripts, and caused him to ignore or downplay contrary evidence. Maybe he was deliberately encouraged by Air New Zealand not to consider the waypoint issue important. Maybe Air New Zealand themselves misunderstood the significance. They'd already made one misjudgment with the waypoint. That error could have persisted through their understanding of the accident. We don't really know. What we do know is that the Royal Commissioner, Justice Mann, wasn't buying any of it. He got particularly fed up by Air New Zealand's constant attempts to portray the pilots as breaking orders by flying low, despite the fact that there were even news articles describing the previous flights, not to mention the airline's own publicity material about the flights. He also didn't like the way Air New Zealand had been shredding documents. Now, this may have just been a particularly ill-advised attempt to avoid bad publicity by shredding duplicate documents to avoid leaks to the media, but it really doesn't look good during an investigation, particularly when there were some documents known to have existed before the shredding that weren't available or couldn't be found afterwards. Of course, normally in an investigation, you'd expect to find this sort of confusion. You expect to find misfiled or missing records. You expect to find documents with wrong numbers. All that sort of thing just happens in any organisation. Even you often find that people thought that they'd seen things that later they can't find. The trouble is, all that may be normal, but once you've been caught shredding documents, you kind of lose all of that benefit of the doubt. Every time the Commission couldn't find a document that should have existed, there was suspicion that it had gone into the shredder. There was even some suggestion that there were documents that were recovered from the crash site and got destroyed. In his final report... McMahon said that the accident was caused by a systems failure of the airline, arising from a defective administrative structure and communication system. He suggested that the airline's behaviour after the accident was a company closing ranks to defend their own shortcomings and to blame the pilots. He said they had a predetermined plan to mislead the investigation and had presented an orchestrated litany of lies. He also said that the airline's defensive approach had unnecessarily hindered and extended the Royal Commission, so he ordered that they pay half the cost, as well as two-thirds of the expenses of the pilot states for participating. Air New Zealand appealed, and they got the costs order set aside, but not the perjury finding. Justice McMahon then appealed to the Privy Council. Not only did he lose, but the law lords also informally undermined his claims of conspiracy. I want to talk a little bit about using morality as a lens to look at accidents like T901. Because clearly there were a lot of accusations flying around, not just that things had gone wrong, but that people had acted in ways that were reprehensive both before and after the accident. Now, some listeners may remember that in episode 54 of DisasterCast, when I was talking about stadium disasters in particular the Hillsborough accident and cover-up, I suggested that just because some of the police behaved badly in trying to turn the blame onto the football fans, that didn't mean that the police themselves should be blamed for the accident. At the time, I was thinking of blame as some sort of zero-sum game where one society starts throwing blame around, 
we're dissatisfied with simple exoneration. The only way to f- truly redeem one side is to find another side to blame for the disaster. Now, I actually caught a bit of stick for that particular explanation because some of the listeners really felt that I was giving the police a free pass. And since then, I've run into an article by philosopher Peter French that talks about an idea called the principle of responsive adjustment. French describes the principle specifically with reference to the Erebus disaster. Now, the principle of responsive adjustment says that even if a mistake is non-intentional, we're morally obliged to adjust our behaviour so we don't make the same mistake again. And if we fail to do this, if we fail to update our behaviour and be better people as the result of an honest mistake, then we kind of lose our right to say that the mistake was innocent in the first place. The hypothetical example he uses to illustrate the principle is a guy called Sebastian who accidentally gets drunk and causes property damage. Because Sebastian didn't mean to get drunk, and he didn't mean to cause damage, he has some excuse. But if he sobers up, realises what he's done wrong, then heads straight down the pub to get drunk again, he probably should be held morally responsible for any future damage he causes. Moreover, his past behaviour isn't just a once-off innocent mistake anymore. It's part of a pattern of behaviour that he's embraced, and he's proven that he's willing to do this even when he is fully aware of its consequences, so he shouldn't get a free pass for doing it when he's not aware of its consequences. And this principle might be why we tend to associate cover-ups with moral responsibility for the accidents themselves. Just because Air New Zealand tried to blame the pilots doesn't in any way say they intentionally did something wrong to cause the accident. But they proved themselves willing to go to great lengths to defend their conduct rather than to learn from it. Under the principle of responsive adjustment, by not trying to correct their pattern of behaviour, they became blameworthy for mistakes that might have been called innocent if they'd been willing to own up to them and try to fix them. I should stress that the principle is about morality and blame. It's not a legal idea, and it probably shouldn't be. It's very attractive because it lets us get even more morally outraged at people who want to blame other people for accidents instead of doing their best to learn from them. I'm still uncomfortable. Even ethically justified outrage is still a cloud to learning. We should be angry at Air New Zealand's actions, but we should be angry because they prevent us from learning more than we would otherwise. There have been whole books and movies about the Erebus disaster, most of them focusing on the post-accident controversy. But even with this intense scrutiny, we'll never get to the bottom of what actually happened. The people with the best real understanding of why the waypoint got changed and why the organisational communication didn't work are the same people who were denying so hard that it hadn't happened at all. We'll never hear their frank and honest account of the story. And that's sad. My day job is at the Safety Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia. 
We run postgraduate programs in safety that you can attend as a local or as a remote student, even an international student, just for single courses or for a full postgraduate certificate or master's in safety leadership. I also supervise an eclectic team of researchers. We have organisational psychologists, engineers, social scientists, pilots, safety managers, an infantry major and a ninja. Most of the research involves studying normal work, trying to understand how work works in order to make it safer, or studying safety practice, trying to understand how and why safety people do the things they do. The project that's been occupying most of my time recently is a combination of the two. It's testing an idea called decluttering. The basic idea is to take multiple work crews who are performing similar work and either take away or transform the extra safety tasks they've been given intended to support the work. Of course, we don't take away anything that we think actually helps, and we're ready to put things straight back in if there's any negative change. But what this does is it gives us an opportunity to create a reasonably rigorous experiment, but in an entirely real-world setting. And it lets us test out whether safety activities are really doing what they're meant to be doing. It's an exciting project and it's created room for another early career researcher in our lab. If you have a PhD and you're dreaming of a safety research job that keeps you constantly in the field working with industry, please do reach out. We may have space for you. And as always, any listener can contact the podcast on feedback at disastercast.co.uk. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash disastercast, just like star patrons Hunter, Zoe, David, Bob, and Daniel. Thanks, guys. And new patron, Ruidri. Sorry if I've mispronounced that. Till next time, folks. Keep safe.